0: My name is Carlos Pascual, Senior Vice President for Global Energy and International Affairs. And welcome to this edition of Sierra Week Conversations by IHS Market. This has been an exclusive series intended to bring you inside knowledge on energy, climate, technology, policy. And today we're gonna to combine all of these, looking at the prospects for success in COP26, the UN Framework Convention on Clim- Climate Change Conference of the Parties 26. If we all recall, COP 21 was the one that produced the Paris Agreement. And today we have a phenomenal group that will lead us through this conversation. The first is Laurence Tubiana. Laurence, a pleasure to have you here and thank you for being with us.
1: Hello, happy to be here too, Carlos.
0: Thank you, Laurence. So Laurence is the CEO of the European Climate Foundation. She was France's climate envoy and was responsible for pulling together the the logistics, the substance and the operational realities of COP21 that produced the Paris Agreement. So direct knowledge to give us the foundations for that discussion. And we have Ernie Moniz, um, well known to many of the people on this call. Uh, currently, the CEO of the Energy's Future Initiative and the Secretary of Energy for the United States from 2013 to through 2017, and participated in COP21 in that perspective. Ernie, what a pleasure to have you once again with us at Searwick. Good to see
2: you, Carlos. But that was January 20th, 2017.
0: <laughs> uh, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, And then Mary Nichols. Um, Mary has been the head of the California Air Resources Board and has been such a critical player at a sub-national level from California and participating consistently in these Conference of the Parties. Mary, pleasure to have you joining us today.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So why such emphasis on COP26? We have to put this in the context that in the past few years we have countries representing 75% of global emissions, 80% of GDP that have now committed to net zero emissions. And many are looking at COP26 as the place, the foundational point that will help translate those aspirations into action. And from that perspective, Lawrence, I'd like to begin with you because you were in this position six years ago, 2015, going into the Paris COP and you were thinking about how do I bring all these countries together? And how do we get this to work? How do we translate that to COP26? What in your mind is so critical to create action coming out of this conference?
1: I think the main, the main challenge for this COP26 because it follows uh, now six years after Paris Agreement with a commitment of all countries to enhance their climate plan by 2030 and it's very good news that even if we are lacking behind on this uh, more next 10 years commitment and, and we have to wait for of course some big players like India, China and others to really make uh, much more ambitious plans, what, what is really good is that the, the progress on the long-term target, the long-term strategy is there. And so the, the COP26 has to capitalize on the short-term action inconsistent with this net zero goals that now uh, more than 115 countries has adopted and with an element of credibility in there. So for me, on one side, the success of COP26 is this, 2030, more ambitious, 2050, clearly a pathway to there, how to get there and not only the target, that which is a credibility part. On the other side, understand that five years after, more than five years after Paris, the, the impact of climate change are more clear than ever. And so we need to have a financial package that support in a way the problem of the, the, the losses and the damages that climate change is really operating already. So this is a two, two elements, credibility across the board, truth, speaking the truth to, to everybody and that everybody has to be truthful, but in these two ambition on the short and the long-term and understanding that now impact on climate change are not for the future, it's for now, and there are financial consequences to that.
0: Ernie, building on Lawrence's point on the short term in 2030, a great deal of focus gets put on nationally determined contributions, the, the pledges or the commitments that countries make. Um, from the perspective of individual national governments, are, are these NDCs the principal name of the game or does it need to go deeper into translating those commitments into policy, regulatory, legislative actions to be able to provide the kind of credibility that Lawrence talks about?
2: Yeah, Carlos, let me first uh, um, build off of uh, Lawrence's uh, statement in the following way. Uh, You you say why COP26 focus, et cetera. Uh, I just note that uh, Uh, I I take the starting gun to be, in many ways, 1992 in Rio. Uh, In fact, in the United States, we often forget that the United States Senate did endorse uh, our actions uh, uh, needed on climate change in 1992. Uh, With the net zero 2050 focus, we are actually at the midway point, 29 years behind us and 29 years ahead uh, to to mid-century. Uh, frankly, uh, you know, the elephant in the room uh, is that we have not made nearly enough progress uh, in the first 29 years uh, to put us in good shape uh, for uh, reaching something like, uh, like net zero. Now, uh, I think on Paris, first of all, let me say that, uh, uh, you know, Rio said we've got to do it. It didn't say how, what, when. Paris, I thought, was after a lot of back and forth Uh, the place where some very important things got established, like uh, all countries accepting responsibility. I have a particular uh, affection for uh, Paris having put innovation, technology innovation at the core of the solutions, um, mission innovation announced there, et cetera. But uh, as uh, Lawrence uh, uh, indicated, uh, clearly while I think a process was put in place for ambition, it, it's, it really is kicked to Glasgow to really put that ambition forward uh, in the context of, of net zero going forward. The NDCs are critical, as you say. Uh, in the United States, uh, we have our own now more ambitious uh, NDC. It is extremely difficult to reach those 2030 goals. We can't do it unless we come out uh, really hard. And that's where I think the Biden administration uh, is doing a good job along the lines that you've stated, putting out policies, regulations, infrastructure bills, uh, uh, et cetera, that are trying to put some reality behind our approach to 2030. Uh, It's gonna be tough, but I do think that there are elements of bipartisanship, the infrastructure bill, the innovation agenda, for example, but still a tough road to hoe uh, in terms of some of the critical policy issues, like, for example, carbon pricing.
0: Ernie, excellent. And I, I would also note that in, um, uh, at Rio in 1992, the person that represented the United States was President uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, Republican president who was responsible right. for stating the U.S. position at that time, indicating the bipartisan nature that actually got all of this going to begin with. Absolutely. Um, you've seen all of this action then develop from a subnational basis, and you've demonstrated how important, uh, particularly from the perspective of the state of California, subnational actors can be. As you're looking ahead to this critical point of action, what are the things going through your mind on the role that subnational players should be playing.
3: Well, <clears throat> thanks. Uh, first of all, I, I'm excited for an opportunity to uh, see again, many colleagues from states and provincial governments and mayors, uh, as well as uh, private sector actors that we have been working with over these last few years. I, I can't uh, agree more strongly uh, with uh Uh, both of the previous speakers about the disappointment after Paris when it seemed as though things were just stalled and the politics, not just in the US but in many other parts of the world seemed to be going backwards. But um, the the light that continued to shine and the progress that has been made on the technology front uh, in terms of both uh, innovation, invention, investment and implementation of uh, policies to move that agenda uh, has been rising up from states within the US, not just California, uh, but states representing more than half of our population, which have uh, either comprehensive or partial climate policies of their own, uh, as well as uh, from many other parts of the world And those communications have continued and uh, have been enormously strengthened in the last few years by um, the increasing drumbeat of demand uh, for action coming from the private sector, not just, again, a handful of uh, major global players that we've seen in the past, but much larger numbers of uh, companies uh, adopting pledges, doesn't mean that it will happen, and in fact, there's a now a, a really interesting dilemma around trying to help uh, companies figure out how to even measure net zero. Uh, having said that's what they plan to do, uh, but that gives us a, a tremendous uh, opening, I think, to work with uh, with new partners. So. The, the table is set here for a very successful uh, COP, I believe, um, if the leaders there uh, are able and willing to listen to what's arising up from their uh, grassroots.
0: We'll come back to those issues, especially in the private sector in a second. Ernie, let me ask you about the, the US-China relationship. It was so critical in COP21. Um, how fundamental or critical is it now?
2: Well, I go back to uh, Willie Sutton and why, why he robbed banks. That's where the money was. Well, this that's where the carbon is. Uh, uh, I think China and the United States uh, uh, reaching some form of condominium uh, on climate, despite the obvious uh, extreme geopolitical tensions uh, that have developed in the last six years since, since Paris, uh, I, I think is critical. Now, that's uh, of course, uh, the, the European Union and, and other uh, major, uh, major uh, sources of emissions are critical, but uh, especially in the current uh, times of geopolitical stress, I think the United States and, and, and China uh, pursuing what was at least spoken when John Kerry visited there, uh, I, I believe is, is, is absolutely critical. Uh, of course, in the net zero context, uh, it to me it's encouraging that China uh, uh, also put forward net zero, even if it's somewhat beyond beyond mid-century. Uh, I think that, frankly, reflects the reality that uh, not all countries, at different levels of economic development, most especially the developing world, is going to be able really to meet kind of a mid-century target. But but if everybody rose together, I think. Uh, we can, uh, we, can still, we can still get there.
0: Um, so on the opposite side of the rising together, France, um, one other issue which has consistently come up is the question that increasingly is framed as environmental justice and the tensions between North and South, rich and poor on these issues of climate. Um, has there been a greater understanding evolving on how there are common interests or are there fundamental issues that this COP has to resolve on the North-South
1: relationship? You know, uh, this opposition is is uh, has different high and lows. Uh, this particular context of Glasgow, which is not particularly positive on that side, is uh, together with the climate crisis. We are, of course, in the pandemic crisis at the same time, right. <clears throat> and the lack or the felt lack of solidarity around the vaccine issue is, of course, emphasizing uh, the, the, the divergencies that exist. And, and a recent report of IMF has signaled that we are faced with a, an increased divergencies after a moment where inequalities between countries was narrowing. And that's not the case anymore because of the pandemic crisis. So this is objective factors, objective elements that makes this uh, bridging the gap between the perception and the, and the future and the expectation is now more difficult than it was in 2015 where we had a more positive economic context. And, and again, a, a lot of capacity to work out and to outreach to many of developing countries, again, to prevent this divide to happen. Now, of course, as Annie said, China decision will be key to that even balance. Because if China decided to go ahead with a more ambitious commitment, in a way that will play in in the the vision that everyone has to go forward and that it is a common threat. We have to have common responsibilities, uh, even if we have in a very tense geopolitical context. So I do think that the divide exists again because of the vaccine crisis, because of the lack of finance, because of this Element of di- economic divergences, and that in a way is is a very big challenge and is a very big, big responsibility, in particular for G7 countries, but not only for them, because as we know, most of the debt actually is uh, is owned by by the Chinese uh, economy and the Chinese bank nowadays. So I do think it's a it's a big element of challenge for for the UK government as a presidency and for all G7 countries if we don't want to repeat. What happened finally in two thousand nine in Copenhagen in Denmark? So it's a, a point to look at very very carefully and to show something on finance before class goes that can, in a way, weaken this perception of opposition and divergences.
2: Uh, Carlos, may I uh, just jump in and add that, in my view, we can come back to this, but uh, at neither the national nor the international level are we sufficiently focused on ambition of the type that we want is going to require much more attention to our policies being progressive and not having the poor frankly bear bear a much bigger burden than they can than they can uh, take on
1: no I, I can only insist on what Ernest just said the 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 progressiveness of the regressiveness of the policies we are implementing will make this make or break beyond whatever engagement targets, crop events, etc. So we have to really put social issues at the core and environmental justice at the core of any action if we want really ambition to be developed and implemented. I totally and, agree. And
0: Mary, maybe you want to add a word to this because uh, of- uh,
3: just to say that this has been, I think, observed in the in the real world as we. Uh, Try to move forward uh, after Paris, uh, you know, when you saw people demonstrating in the streets of Paris over gasoline prices uh, in in California, a great part of the ability of our climate uh, plan to make real progress has been the fact that the legislature from the very beginning insisted that in our carbon pricing Uh, program that uh, 40% of all the revenue from state uh, sale of allowances to uh, businesses that had to have allowances to emit uh, would be uh, directed towards uh, the communities that had the worst uh, environmental and social conditions. So it was a direct statement of policy that has been, in fact, enforced uh, now for uh, more than a decade, that uh, the we would be putting um, financial and moral <laughs> commitments behind uh, the need for uh, much greater uh, environmental justice. And it's... Uh, uh, Ernie is exactly right to flag that issue at this time, because I think uh, other places that try to move forward with making bold, ambitious statements will discover the same problem uh, once they actually start to uh, take it seriously, which is that they won't be able to unless they can uh, develop better mechanisms for uh, for actually making the changes happen.
0: Yeah, So theoretical, technical solutions without taking into account uh, political, social, Uh, realities, the reality of the poor um, are going to be challenged, Um, but let's let's make a little bit of a switch to the private sector side and Ernie if I can start with you on this. Um, Getting to net zero is going to require trillions of dollars of investment, it has to come from private sources, how do we start thinking about how to unlock that?
2: Carlos, uh, if you'll forgive me, I'm gonna make one more comment, derivative of our last discussion uh, before coming to that. uh, Namely that the word that I like to uh, use in terms of effective climate action is coalitions. Uh, This issue of environmental justice is just one dimension of enormous political coalitions uh, we need to put together if we're gonna be able to move at a fast clip. And and again, we can come back to this, but I think there are unfortunately a number of voices who try to narrow the debate and narrow the solutions and fragment coalitions rather than building them. So I think that's a very, very important uh, question. Now, in terms of the trillions of dollars, you're absolutely right. And and clearly uh, uh, we need to have the private sector come forward. I think right now there is an enormous premium, however, on the public sector enabling the private sector to make those investments with a reasonable prospect of, for example, stable policy. We certainly cannot argue that we have a stable view ahead in terms of where policy is going. Certainly in the United States, the partisanship uh, is, one, is one clear example. So I think the, the public-private partnerships, the establishing the rules of the road with a sufficient certainty for companies to change their business models, for banks and pension funds, et cetera, to expect returns uh, as they invest in the clean energy deployment that we need to start seeing right now. Uh, clearly, the early stages, the innovation stages, I think, frankly, are pretty decently supported, as I said earlier, with some, with some bipartisanship. But it's when you start getting to the advanced demonstrations and deployment where uh, we're going to need to have a lot more partnership between, I think, the public and the private sectors in this decade.
0: Mayor, you sat in that seat in the state of California of creating those incentives from the private sector. Observations to learn from.
3: Well, I agree with the uh, the general comment that a sense of um, uh, stability, which you know was something the U.S. used to be known for, uh, is is critical. Uh, at this point, there's still, I think, a very fragile. Uh, enthusiasm for the US being back in, uh, into the global uh, discussions and commitments, but um, there's still so much uh, leftover uh, uncertainty. Uh, I think one of the things that that has led to is the increasing importance of Europe's role. Frankly, when we, you know, in California, we have a lot of interactions with China, both at the national and the subnational level. Uh, I'm part of, a, of an institute that's a joint between uh, the University of California and Tsinghua University, and that's headed up by our former governor and the current uh, chief negotiator, climate negotiator for China. And we have very regular discussions with them by, by Zoom and keep track of what, what each of us is, is, is up to. And you can see that um, they are looking more than they ever were before towards Europe as a source of um, political strength uh, to to keep the the climate work going um, so that we have something more like a triangle uh, than just a a bipartisan or bi-national uh, kind of um, interaction going on there. And um, uh, we welcome that. I mean, I think it's I think it's extremely healthy and offers even more opportunities to deploy and to learn from each other's uh, actions, what works and what doesn't work.
0: Um, we have about five minutes left, so just to give us a time frame. I know it's gone by so quickly. And Laurent, uh, Mary's obviously set you up. I hope one of the things that you can talk about is. The reality of pricing carbon, the ETS in Europe, um, and how that plays into this equation.
1: Well, uh, and, and beyond beyond the price of carbon, the, the idea that there is a triangle, which is absolutely crucial for shifting the economy, the global economy to net zero, is really the convergence, at least of whatever it's instrument of policy, uh, policy framework, decision on the financial regulation, all this that will happen in China, in US, and Europe. Will determine the future. So it's so important that we work on the convergence of them, uh, whatever form it can take. I I do totally uh, agree with what Mary says, and I hope that we will understand that beyond the the geopolitical tension, there is uh, obviously norms that can in a way be translated into the system differently, but I think that could uh, aim at the same uh, at the same target which is really decarbonize deeply the economy in this time frame uh, the carbon price in Europe and and of course you, you have seen this growing it has an impact now on, on many of course economies and industries uh, that's why there is a whole discussion on how that would impact the competitiveness of in particular uh, how to have it um emissions uh in, in sectors like steel or cement that are really struggling with with really redu- reducing their emissions so i understand that the carbon price as high price as it is in europe will not be met by the same uh, response in us at least immediately uh china is another camp of course with the carbon market but still of course very low price so the convergence of prices will probably not happen very quickly but then we have to understand how and have a frank discussion on how to balance these the divergences in the policy instrument. And and I do think that the, the EU has made a very bold movement trying to, industry, for example, include maritime and aviation transport into EU ETS. I think it's really interesting. It, it will create a shock, that for sure, because of what EU market is a very global market, very big market. But I do think that offer an opportunity for more conversation on how we we make this shift together and not against one another?
0: Um, Mary, in terms of making these shifts, um, when people start talking about data, disclosure, reporting, uh, accounting standards, their eyes tend to uh, glaze over, right? But at the same time, as someone who was centrally involved in government and having to make decisions about data, Um, How important is coming to an understanding on rules, like in Article 6 on accounting, on data disclosure, how critical is this at this point to help us keep the momentum going forward?
3: Uh, I think it's uh, very important. It's always been fundamental to the success of any kind of a market-based scheme that the data be trusted by people who have to make decisions about where and how to invest. So uh, I think the increasing role of the private sector here is one of the things that's going to drive us towards uh, more action, more decision-making, uh, more breaking of the, uh, of the various chains that keep us from um, agreeing on, even if they're provisional or temporary or you know, not entirely uh, legally regulatory in nature, uh, having uh, better uh, arrangements for how we uh, keep track of uh, the emissions data. I know we don't have time to get into discussions about offsets, but all of that uh, is completely dependent on having real solid uh, solid data and willingness to use it.
0: Um, and in sort of beginning to, to close us out on the last two comments. So Laurence, let me turn to you first and then Ernie. Um, Ernie mentioned earlier the the issue of innovation and technology, something that you faced in COP21. Mission Innovation was launched at COP21. How important is that going to be in COP26?
1: First, it is a very good memory. Uh, I remember when we convened uh, Modi, uh, of course, um, President Obama and, uh, and the French president to go along together on mission innovation and of course Bill Gates and others. That was, I think, a defining moment. And I see that mission innovation has delivered not everything, of course, but, but a lot of things. And I see that now uh, the, the innovation element is embedded in now most of the big players' policy. You see that in China, you see that in Europe, you see that in Europe. Europe is now very focused on, of course, uh, green hydrogen, battery building batteries, um, doing a zero carbon steel and cement. So this is because innovation is now a sort of a, a very, very important direction. How much we can share that with other economies who are struggling with uh, access to these technologies, their deployment of these technologies, when of course on some of them are getting much cheaper, but still there is not a confidence that this can be deployed at scale. And it's even true for renewable energy, where renewable energy we know is cheaper, but still there is not a confidence that it can be uh, deployed at scale. So there is a lot to do on technology sharing, on ownership, on learning, and I hope COP 26 will, will deliver on that. Uh, on the in a way, building on the dynamic on the public private sectors that mission innovation was about.
0: Ernie, um, maybe to close out the discussion, um, your perspectives on the path forward, investment going forward.
2: Thank you. Yeah, just to uh, take up on the innovation point, uh, uh, one specific direction uh, that I would recommend, uh, Laurence is. Uh, that mission innovation brought in to uh, negative carbon technologies. Uh, the word "net" is a very important word. Uh, it fundamentally implies that negative carbon technologies will be uh, an important part of this of the solution. Uh, and so that's an example where I think a collective response uh, through something like mission innovation would be uh, would be quite. Uh, quite important. Also, if I, if I may go back to an earlier comment that Laurence made, um, I would just highlight, I think words that you didn't quite say, but you circled around them, uh, carbon border adjustments. Uh, I think that, uh, of course, the EU has been pushing that, discussions in the United States. Uh, I think that's a place where many of the hard questions that we have discussed come, come together in terms of how uh, carbon border adjustments, which at some level are needed, uh, uh, how they are implemented is a very, very tricky issue. And I think one that we will be discussing for years uh, going uh, going forward. Uh, And I guess you asked about uh, investment, Uh, Carlos. uh, I think I would just end by repeating what you've said, that. There's no way that we are going to get the kind of deployment pace that we need to meet the NDCs that are coming forward for 2030 uh, without rapidly unlocking private capital. I think it's very encouraging what we are seeing. We are seeing, for example, non-traditional investors uh, making, now beginning to make large scale, uh, let's say eight and nine figure uh, investments uh, in, uh, in low-carbon deployment. Uh, I don't think that that, that that is yet all settled. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues to be resolved uh, in terms of the returns, in terms of how diligence is performed, uh, how the more traditional and the non-traditional investors come together, uh, I think, uh, as a much more effective partnership. But it is happening uh, and, uh, and, and what Mary referred to earlier as well, in terms of the corporate disclosures, it's all part of the same churn going on, but we need to resolve this uh, within the next few years to have impact by, uh, by
0: 2030. Uh, a couple of things that just strike me from the conversation, just from the very beginning, and you closed on it at the end, Ernie, the importance of 2030. The, the need for action quickly to demonstrate credibility, but also to turn the tide and ensure that the pathway going forward, as you said earlier, Lawrence, the pathway to 2050 becomes viable dependent on what we do in the next 10 years. Critical to keep in mind. Secondly, the importance of coalitions acting together. We've talked about the United States, China, and Europe, but in that context the coalitions on how they treat environmental justice and the poor and the impact that they have on technology. And then the third thing is the huge importance of the private sector in terms of investment, but this question of pricing carbon, carbon border adjustments, how it affects the incentives and the way that companies and investors plan is going to be key. And indeed there is a debate here, which I have a hard time imagining will get solved at COP26. I think the adjustment issue will take a long time. These are issues that are really, I think, critically important to look forward, look, continue to look at as we continue to move forward. I can't thank the three of you enough, Ernie Moniz, Mary Nichols, Laurence Tubiana, for contributing your insights to this conversation. And I hope we can see you in person at Sierra Week 2022 in Houston next year. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you,